start. All right. You can I, set the door okay, yeah, I will. All right, Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We're going to finish this chapter and get into 14 tonight and uh, just take a little bit of time. Uh, we got all the way down through ver to verse 53, and uh, really we've been looking at the parables of the kingdom of heaven, and uh, we've looked down through all seven of them, um, four, in, four outside, three in the house, four outside the house, three inside the house, and so forth. And now we come here to, to the end of the chapter, verse 53. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brethren, James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not, he, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Uh, by the way, there in verse 57, when he says, and they were offended in him, uh, that's an issue of they were, uh, they were shocked by him. They, they, they were astonished at, at his ability to communicate and to teach and to do. So what you see here with Matthew 13 now is it ends with the Lord being fully rejected, but now fully rejected as a prophet. The, the verse 57 there where he said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, in his own house, and yet there, there, there he is being rejected. So we've seen him come through the book, where he's presented himself as king, and now he's presenting himself as a prophet, and he stands before them, he gives them the, mystery, the parables of the mystery of the kingdom, and when it's all concluded... And everything is there, then they go and they reject him. <laughs> He's given them all this information. And, that, and again, what that tells you is it just picks up where we were in chapter 10, 11, and 12. They're just, re they're, they're flat out rejection. So in chapter 14, we're just going to go right back. 13 just kind of stuck in there. And we're going to pick right back up where 12 left off, which is, where he is rejected. So here he's, for, he, he's rejected, and the fact of, of Christ's rejection is now the governing thought as we proceed in, from the book. So from here on out, it's a fact. There's nothing, uh, it's not something that they are about to do. It's something that they are doing. They're doing it. So when we start chapter 14, will begin to develop some uh, various uh, different angles and looks about the issue of the day of his rejection. And in chapter 14, as we go down through and so forth, we'll see the Lord go out and feed the 5,000. He'll go out in that ship. Uh, in, in a, I love that. In, uh, he, he, uh, verse 13 there, he says, he, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. 
And how do you have a ship in the desert? You know, that kind of, you can have some fun with that, you know. But uh, it's actually, it, he was talking about deserted, you know, nobody's there. Rather, you know, everybody says, you live, on the, you live in the desert. I said, no, it's the dessert. <laughs> I like dessert, you know, we'll have that instead. So anyway, so as we get into verse 14, or chapter 14, we'll see some things there where he's going to do some stuff here. He's going to walk out on that storm. He's going to walk on the water. You know, I can remember growing up, Dad, oh, boys, we're going to go walk on the water. Well, it was 10 below and the pond was frozen, you know, three foot deep. So we're able to go walk on the water and everything. But uh, so we're going to see that. But really what's happening here now is Matthew is painting, uh, he, he, he's now painting some uh, things here with that issue of dispensationalist. And again, he's, he's not going through chronologically order. He's showing them some things. He's, he's collecting together some events and some information here out of the life of Christ that demonstrate that he is the king, the Messiah. He's going to do some things. And, and so forth, and it's really from a viewpoint of dis, a dispensational viewpoint. We've had up to here, now with John, we've had the law and the prophets were until John, and now the preaching of the kingdom. So even in Israel's program, there's a shift in what's going to happen. So, so Matthew here, uh, as we begin to start, he's going to begin to look at some things here in chapter 14. But before we do that, we need to catch a couple things here in verse 55. By the way, it's critical to remember that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John display, put on people. I was just reading a little book about the harmony of the, of the Gospels, harmonizing the Gospels. The Gospels do not harmonize, okay? You cannot put them in a harmonic way where this verse goes in front of this one and this one goes here, because they're not written that way, okay? If God wanted there to be one gospel, he'd have wrote what? One gospel. He didn't. He, wrote, he writes from the four viewpoints of the prophetic scriptures, of the four things that the Lord's going to do. He's going to be their king. He's going to be their servant. He's going to be the man, the son of man, and he's, and he's their blesser. He is God. He is Jehovah. So you've got those four viewpoints, and, and I'll be honest with you, you always kind of have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind when you're reading through this, because it'll keep you out of trouble. Because we're going to read some things here in chapter 14. He's going to talk about the, the death of John and everything, and he's just going to mention it and keep moving. When we studied John, there's a ton of stuff left out of John in the record. We saw it in Luke. We're seeing it here in Matthew. And so as we go down through, he's going to make an allurement here, and he'll look at the, and then it's like, okay, well, now what do we got? Now we got to go over to Mark and Luke and get the detail. And it isn't because Matthew is an idiot and can't figure out what's going on, because the Holy Spirit's the one who told him what to write. It's a matter of the of the viewpoint, of the prophetic viewpoint and the showing of, of the Lord. So when we get into Matthew. The issue in this part of Matthew is his rejection. And it's here where he's going to begin to demonstrate uh, from really from here on in his dealings with Israel that, that issue of 
having the little flock on, on, in place. He's leaving them, getting them ready, and, and, and moving them in. And, and again, if you understand that, that the, what the Lord is doing is setting up that little flock to operate in his absence, then the book of Acts is a cakewalk. It's easy to understand. You, you quickly don't, if you can understand what the Lord's going to be doing from here on in Matthew, he does it in John. You start in John 13, 14, 15, 16, goes in that upper room for five or six chapters. He's getting them ready for his absence, for the ministry that's coming their way. And if you can, under, if you can get that in your thinking about, one, we got the four pictures, the four portraits, and then what the Lord's doing, then when you move into early Acts after his ascension, then you never think that he's talking about the starting of the church, the body of Christ in Acts 2. You instantly just see the continuation of what's going on. It's just him gone and, and so forth. And, and again, I, it's, I say all that just because it's frustrating when you see people who ought to know better that don't. And they throw the curveball and they do this or that and I was just reading a real good, you know, they used to be a real good grace organization, and now they're kind of meddling and mixing and stuff. And it's like, man, and they have a big following, hundreds of thousands of people, and they just leading them right down a road, you know. And so, yeah, they understand right division. They understand Paul's distinctive ministry, but they also like to dabble over here in other things. And and they do a very bad job of it. So, <clears throat> yeah, we, yeah, uh, chap, yeah. All right, look at verse 55. Something here just real quick to catch. Technically, um, and, uh, as we come and begin, uh, the, well, as we come to the end of, of 13. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Now, when they bring this up, by the way, this is not a good thing. This isn't a positive attaboy. They are rejecting him. They're, it's, this is ridicule. The, this is like when they looked over there to him. We, we saw it in John. We, we're not one born out of, you know, that little, I almost said fornication, but we're not one born out of there with, with, like you were. So it's a dig at them. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence they had this man, uh, I'm sorry, whence then hath this man all these things? Notice the, pas pa the passage clearly teaches that Jesus had brothers and sisters, okay? So this passage demonstrates clearly that Mary was not a perpetual virgin, which is what the Roman Catholics and, and some of the Greek Orthodox, you know, those guys all begin to say. And again, the idea that of the Virgin Mary and the Blessed Mary and all that, uh, it, it just comes out of Baal worship. It comes out of back in Jeremiah 44 and the Queen of Heaven and all of that, so forth. So... The Lord was her firstborn child, and he didn't have an earthly father, okay? But she then had a husband, Joseph, 
And Joseph had, and her had some children. Now, think about it. His brothers, you've got James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, at least four brothers. And verse 56, his sisters. So that's plural. So at least two sisters. So there's at least seven children that Mary had, bore. One of them was the Lord Jesus Christ, her firstborn, no earthly father. But the other six had an earthly father. And he was a carpenter. And it's that, that simple. It's that straightforward. The problem is religion. Because what they then do is they come in and they say, well, brother there is a bad translation. It should really say cousin. Okay? Now, come over to Luke 1, because there, that's an interesting thing when they say that. Luke 1 and verse 36. Luke 1, verse 36. You, you, you see, when the Lord wants to say brother, what does he say? Brother. When he wants to say cousin, what does he say? Cousin. Luke 1, 36. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth. Drop down to verse 58, Luke 1, 58. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. So when God says, wants to say cousin, what's he say? He says cousin. Come back over to Mark 6. When he wants to say brothers or brethren, you know what he says? brother or brethren so it's it's not hard to figure out what's you know what's going on unless you have a belief system you're trying to protect and you're trying to keep rolling mark chapter 6 here's the other passage verse 3 same as matthew 13 there is not this the carpenter the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us, and they were offended at him. Brothers and sisters, it's clear and easy to get, okay? And unfortunately, they tend to butcher it, and they do it again so that they can keep hold of a religious idea that comes out of Baal worship, comes out of the Old Testament and the satanic policy of evil, the attack on true doctrine, sound doctrine, and they just attack, 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 and, you know, they do what they can. Come over to John chapter 2. And I'll be honest with you, there's a, there's a lot of passages that they do attack, and uh, that the verse over there where Thomas says, My Lord and my God... They hate that one, but they can't, they can't, can't change that one because it's really clear that, that that's what they're doing. Look at John 2. Uh, here's an interesting passage that demonstrates, again, that Mary had other children. John 2, 17. And his disciples <clears throat> remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, who's this a reference to? It's a reference to Christ, okay? The verse, remember the verse that said, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up? 
they understand that in the passage to be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, come back to Psalms 69, because this is where this verse is quoted from. And again, Psalm 69, a great passage. Uh, it's talking about his coming. It's called the Reproach Psalm, Psalm 69, and verse number 9. And uh, it, it's called the Reproach Psalm because of verse 21 there, the reproaches of them uh, that fell on me and so forth. Um, but look at verse 9. Here's the quote. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. All right, so that's Christ. Okay? Now look at verse 8. I, am a, I have become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Isn't that interesting? Here's Christ talking about Christ. Psalm 69, he says, verse 8, I'm an alien, I'm, I'm, I'm a stranger. I'm an alien unto my what? Mother's children. So what do they do? They go over there and they mess in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, change all those verses, and they usually forget about Psalm 69, 8. <laughs> See? So when you come back to Matthew 13, this passage ends with, hey, they are rejecting him. And they're rejecting him because they don't like what he just said in those seven parables. But then he throws a little safety pin in there, a little protection about the issue of the virgin birth and the fact that he does have brothers and sisters. By the way, you'll notice in that list is, of his brothers is James. Now that will end up being James, the writer of the epistle of James after Hebrews, and also the James in Acts 15 that meets with them and so forth. Evidently, through the Lord's ministry, earthly ministry, his, his siblings, half-sisters and half-brothers, don't, don't believe in who he says he is. They're fighting, actually literally fight against him, get upset with him, but then come around to believed that he was the Messiah and so forth. And, ha and literally, uh, James ends up becoming uh, uh, one of the leaders. How you know that is the Apostle James in Acts 12, I think it is. It, yep, Acts 12. He's killed by Herod. So Acts 12, verse 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. See, James and John were, buddy, were brothers. That's a different James. That's the Apostle James. The James that writes the, Hebrew, uh, the epistle James is not the Apostle. He's actually the, we would say he's the pastor of the, the circumcision church there at Jerusalem. He's the leader of the church. So that, in Acts 15, you've got James and Peter talking and come on over there. I'm in the hole. Might as well stay in, stay in. Acts 15. Acts 15. <clears throat> this is the event that Galatians 2 records. 
So in Acts 15, he goes there in verse 1. They go down to Jerusalem to, to meet, verse 2. Then you have Peter, verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said, and Peter talks. Then in verse 13, and after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me, Simon hath declared. Well, why would they even listen to James? Well, because he carries a position within that local church there of leadership now. He's one of the elders. And again, you go and you read First and Second Peter, Second Peter specifically, he's well aware of Paul and what's going on with Paul. And he literally says, I was this and now I'm this. I'm an elder. He was an apostle, now I'm an elder. So those guys are very understand what's going on after Acts 15. All right, confuse the water, muddy it up for you. Give you something to think about, okay? Yes. James. That's the Lord's brother. That's the Lord's half-brother. He would be the pastor of the Jerusalem church, we would say. That's how we would say it, okay? <clears throat> if you come to James, the epistle James, James 1, verse number 1, says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. He doesn't say he's the apostle or any of that. He is the servant. Okay, I'll show you this thing about Peter. I'm going to find it here. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. I know dead air is not a good thing, but if you look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 1, I'm sorry, I changed on you. Peter, notice, an apostle of Jesus Christ. See how Peter starts it? He's the apostle. James didn't do that. He said, I'm a servant. Now look at 1 Peter 5 and look at verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. See how he's moved from being an apostle to being an elder? Something's going on. Pete, the change is happening, and Peter's learning about the dispensational interruption and the changing. He starts, I'm an apostle. He gets to the end of the book and says, I'm talking to you elders. Well, that would be James, the Lord's half-brother. And then he says, I'm, I'm one too, okay? Then if you look at 2 Peter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, verse number 1, notice there he says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle. So he still keeps the moniker because that's who he is. But notice how that servant now is first. Things are changing. He's understanding the diminishing. He's understanding the interruption. And he begins to move in that description. Um, he, he, he's going to, um, actually, First, First Peter, 
uh, he write in the end of chapter 5 there, he actually ends up in Babylon. The church at that, uh, 1 Peter 5.13, the church that is at Babylon says hello and everything. And you go, wait a minute, he's supposed to be in Jerusalem. How'd he end up in Babylon? Well, the interruptions happened and things are changing. And he's getting that circumcision, come back to Matthew. He's getting that circumcision church ready to go, ready for when, when the dispensation of grace is over. We're going to go back to it. That's why he says in Acts 15, the Lord's just visiting the Gentiles. And he says, by the way, we've seen this before. This is nothing new. And off he's ready to go. So anyway, that's a, that was a run off, rabbit, rabbit trail run. Haven't had one good like that in a while. All right, go back to Matthew 14. Let, yeah, road trip is right, yeah. Uh, but, but it's those kind of things like that that begin to link together that when you see, like, he lists James there, and, and it's like, wait a minute, I, I've, you know, how, how do you put these guys, he's not the apostle, he's the half-brother of the Lord. So, anyway. All right, Matthew 14. Now we're going to get into uh, to Matthew 14, uh, verse 1. At that time Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore mighty, therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Now Herod is worried here about who Jesus is. He hears about him. And actually, Herod here has a very guilty conscience of what he did to John the Baptist because he killed him. Now, he, he, he had him beheaded. And this is Herod. Back in Matthew 2, there's a Herod. This is the son of that Herod. <laughs> okay? It's, it's very interesting how the Herods all kind of were, actually had different names. But they carried that Herod, the Tetrarch. They carried that title. So what's going to happen here now is he's going to go back and, and show uh, the, the issue of the rejection of Christ, but he's going to do it with looking first here about the issue of Herod killing John. And that incident is going to demonstrate for us the spirit it's going to exhibit the attitude and the heart of the nation of Israel at the time because they allowed Herod to kill John. They didn't stop him. They allowed it to, ha to happen. They, did, they, didn't commit, uh, you know, they didn't commit to it, and they didn't do it. Herod did it. Herod takes the man of God, John the Baptist, and kills him. The prophet sent from God, the father, kills him, cuts his head off, puts it on the charger and everything. But what did Israel do? They did nothing. And there's no excuse for the nation for allowing that to have happened. So Matthew here, starting in verse 3 down to verse 12, it, it's kind of like just he stuck some information in here so you would remember, they would remember, but he's telling you that, Mer that Herod is worried because he thinks Jesus is John. And that's who he killed. So we're going to just read here briefly about the details. This little aside, if you will, 
about an event that really begins to demonstrate the wickedness of Herod, but also the wickedness within the nation of Israel itself to allow Herod to kill John. And really to kill him in such a wicked and vile and criminal fashion. Matthew 14, verse 3. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. In other words, Herod stole his brother's wife. That's what he did. He was living with her, and old John goes in there and Tells him what's, what's what, gives him the truth. And Herod didn't like that. He got upset, and um, he didn't get nearly as upset as Herodias did. And uh, she, he didn't do what she asked him to do originally. So, you know, that old, the old proverb about a scorned woman... That's what happened, you know, happy wife, happy life type stuff. And she let him have an earful, verse 5. By the way, verse 4, it is not lawful for thee to have her. That's what it, that's, you, you go over in, in Mark and you go over in Luke and you read the details. And Herod actually loved talking to John the Baptist, would have him come in and sit and talk. Well, then when he got poking in the business, the family business, <laughs> you know, but Herodias was like, kill him, get rid of him, and he wouldn't do it. He feared the people. He enjoyed the conversations and stuff. She has just had enough, verse 5. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. They, they the people, the nation, they know he's a prophet. Herod fears them, and yet what did they still let Herod do? Kill him. All right? Now, watch the deceitfulness, the wickedness that's going to go on here. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Okay? So they had a little demonstration here got Herod all worked up sexually so what's going on here and he got him all excited got him all worked up verse 7 whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask he said he looks at her and says baby I'll give you whatever you want you just got to take care of me so what does she say verse 8 and she Watch, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. Now, I don't know if you think about how wicked that is, where you have a mom talk to her daughter about throwing herself to some guy and then getting him all shook up and all worked up when he says, Hey, what do you want? And she says, I want his head on a platter. That's wicked. 
That's Romans 1. <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's just brutal. And she does exactly what mom asked her to do. So, again, what did the nation do? Absolutely nothing. So you got this little picture here. Verse 8. Verse 9. And the king was what? Sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her, and he sent and beheaded John in the prison. That's a sad story of lust, bloodlust, that was shed, blood shed to be rejected by man, ju- ju- just the wickedness in it. Verse 11, and his head was brought into a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. You know, everybody always asks, where'd the head of John the Baptist go? I don't know what happened to his head, but what'd they do with his body? They buried him. Then they went and told Jesus... Now, they go to Jesus to, they go to him for comfort, honestly. They, they go to him for help. And, you know, that's what's going to happen here on out now, is because where are they going to get their help from? Christ. Where are they going to get their comfort from? Christ. He's the one to go to. But when Jesus heard it, he heard about the murder of John, what did he do? He departed, verse 13. And when Jesus heard it, heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So you got this horrid picture painted for you about the death of John but what it shows you is the nation is sitting in such a state spiritually that they're just they've rejected the Messiah they don't even think twice about it Herod has the Gentile has and now the people have now it's interesting here when He says that he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And again, you can have fun with ships in a desert. (laughs) And uh, he's not talking about the Sahara Desert or the desert, you know, like we have around here. He's talking about uh, a deserted place as an empty, okay, and uh, quiet, lonely, solitude, a private place. He went off privately to mourn John. He, went, he, he was trying to get away from every... And if, we've ever, if you've ever lost a loved one, you just love the moments of being alone privately to mourn and to think about what was... And that's really what the Lord was doing. And he, when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot. He can't get away from them because they know he's their comfort. So he departs from them, and 
he goes and, and, and he's leaving and he's moving. And uh, he, he's leaving that issue of their rejection. And he just really goes on. He moves on. He withdraws from the unbelieving nation, from the apostate king, and Herod there. He sees John, John's rejection as his own. He, he's always thought about John and his, their mystery, ministries as one ministry. So Jesus felt the wrong. He felt the hurt. He understood. You know, that's, we, when we studied John, John's disciples come, and they're, they're talking to the Lord, and, and the, the uh, apostles, you know, eventually the apostles, they begin to follow John, and then the antagonizers come to John the Baptist and say, see, look, all your people, all your disciples are now following him. And what did John say? I must decrease and he must increase. You see, there was a unity in ministry, a, a oneness there. And the Lord here, again, he, he felt the, the wrong. And uh, he, he understood the rejection. And in that rejection, and as he is Messiah, he is presented as the perfect sufferer. Here's what suffering is. Look, here's what you do when you're going to suffer. Here's the one who enters into the suffering of his people. So he departs, and he wants to go off and be by himself and be able to weep and grieve and get over the death of his cousin. <laughs> Not only his cousin, but his beloved friend. And yet, when he withdraws himself, notice verse 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Look at that. He, he just lost his best friend, if you will. Cousin, family member, co-worker, moving. Everything's going, and we're going. And yeah, we're butting up against that nation and their wickedness and stuff. But we're doing this in spite of all of that rejection. The murder, in spite of all of their unbelief, he still has compassion. He still loves them. And he still has concern for them. And he healed them. So you see, their rejection of him at this point, he's, he doesn't cease to be the one who's going to supply their needs. And he's going to demonstrate that now by being the one who comes, has compassion on them, heals them. He's now going to provide for their need. He's going to, he's going to go feed them now. We're going to start in verse 15. And down, he, in spite of their rejection and the fact of it being a reality, he demonstrates who he is. And Matthew here is presenting Christ is still the one that loves them, and he is still the one who will provide for their needs, even in that desert place, even in the time and the day of his own rejection. He's still the one that's going to, he still has the nation on his heart. Can't quite leave. I mean, yeah, he's going to speak to them in parables, so one gets it and the other doesn't, and he's fed up with them, he's 
I'm done with you. But yet he still just has that yearning for him. In verse 15, and when it was even, evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the village and buy themselves victuals. Imagine that. The multitude and his disciples. Now they come. The, the disciple, uh, he's just been doing ministry work in verse 14, healing them having a time with them, and the disciples come and say, send them away, get rid of them, kick them out, let them get their own food. And yet, he's the one, I mean, if you think about what the disciples come and do, that, when they say send them away, get their own victuals, their own food, that's the dullness of their heart. These are the disciples. You would think that, what would they think about the, the, the multitudes? They need him. And yet, what did they do? Send them away. Get rid of them. Move them on. They, now, obviously, they really didn't send them away because he's going to stop them. But what, what kind of advice is that? Send them away. When it's Jesus that is the... He, Christ is the one that they need. Jesus, but Jesus said unto them, verse 16, They need not depart. Give ye, to, give ye them to eat. You guys go down there and take care of them. Give them something to eat. What they say, verse 17, And they said unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. You know, he says, Man, don't send them away. Your job, you are the little flock. Your job's to take care of these people. You're the apostles. Your job is to, and by the way, that's what he's teaching them here, okay? Your job is to take care of this nation. Don't send them away. Bring them up here. You feed them. They're like, dude, all we've got is five fishes and two loaves of bread. What are we going to do with this? Thousands of people. It's a great multitude. Or, yeah, verse 14. Eh, what? And he says, just come. Come where? Come back up here to me. Come up here. The disciples are so concerned about him that they say, send the multitudes away. The very ones that his heart longs for, they want to send them away. He says, don't you dare do that. Bring them up here. I'll t we're going to take care of them. They need something to eat. I mean, just get the picture here. We don't have enough to feed them. And there he sits in their midst, in the middle of all of that, in his, with all of his power, with all of his glory, because of who he is. And he demonstrates over and over and over and over again, come unto me. I'll take care of you. I am Jehovah. I am. Fill in the blank. What do you need me to do for you today? We need to eat. So he's going to do it. Verse 19, and he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up into heaven, he blessed and break, 
and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. Now notice carefully. He expected to use them, the 12. They were going to become his instruments of action. The 12 apostles. He expected them to act and to do what needed to be done in his absence. You guys go do. They weren't able, they're not able to do it here. They're, they're, they just haven't quite got it yet. Okay? They're learning. They're going. And you know what he does? He says, bring it up here. Come on, bring it back here to me. He takes it, verse 19. He prays over it, breaks it, blesses it, breaks it. Then he starts handing out the loaves to his disciples. Here, Peter, that's yours. Here, John, that's yours. Here, James, that's yours. Here, Matthew, that's yours. Here, Bartholomew. Here, Jude. He hands it all out, and they go out into the multitude, and they fill it. They feed. Well, what happens when they run out of the little stuff? Where do they have to go? Back to him to get the blessing. All right, round two. Boom, here you go. And off they go. And they back and forth, back to Christ, get some more, take it out, give it out, go back to Christ, get some more, take it, hand it out. That whole picture is being painted here for them of their job, of what they're intended to do. And again, he's showing them that they have, that he, their focus, they need to be focusing in on him and what he was doing, and what was needed to be done for the multitudes. And as he, as, I mean, just keep focusing on me, boys. Let's go, let's go, keep going. This ain't going to ever run out. They had 12 baskets left over, the fragments left over. Talk about that in just a second. You see, the abundance, and the provision, and the supply, and the overflowing abundance okay, is because it was focused on him rather than themselves. You know Peter looked out and goes, oh, man, what are we doing now? McDonald's can't feed all these people. <laughs> Not even through the drive-thru. Better order up some pizzas. You know, what is that, Little Caesar? Bam, bam. $5 pizza? This is going to hurt the pocketbook. Judas Iscariot, what's in the bank account, man? We're in trouble. You know he was thinking that. Why? Because we all would think that. But Christ says, wrong thinking, guys. Stinking thinking. <laughs> Just rely on who I am. Bring it back up here to me. Now, in verse 20, they did all eat and were what? Filled. They were satisfied. They didn't lack anything. The blessings that were going to flow into that nation were to come through that little flock, through who they were in Christ, doing their jobs, being who they were. They were going to come out and they were going to benefit that nation. And then that nation was to turn around and benefit who? The Gentiles. Okay? Now, before we go look at that, 
Come back with me to Psalms 132. Psalms 132. Psalms 132 is about the second coming of Christ, and it is literally talking about where we're at in Matthew 14. Psalms 132, there's 18 verses. We're not going to read them all, but start in verse 1. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Verse 8, Arise, O Lord, into what? Thy rest. It's, a, it's, it's about what? It's about His kingdom rest. So, come back, Lord, second coming, now it's time to go into your rest. Verse 9, let thy priests be clothed with righteousness and let thy saints shout for joy. The only place they do that is in the kingdom. Let, for thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it of the fruit of thy body. Will I sit upon thy I'm sorry, will I set upon thy throne if thy children will keep my covenant, my testimony that I shall teach them? Their children shall also sit upon the throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath declared it for his, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Again, kingdom rest. Now watch verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with what? With bread. That's where we're at in Matthew 14. So when you come back here to Matthew 14, they got they are filled. He's the center. It all's focusing in on him. And he's just he's just a witness that the one who could fulfill the promises was right there in their midst. Okay, go back to Matthew 14. Verse 20, they did all eat and were filled, and they took up the fragments that remained, 12 baskets full. And they had eaten, were about 5,000 men besides women and children. That's why I said there's thousands of them. I mean, if you think about 5,000 men, that's also at least 5,000 women, if it's a husband and wife routine. Then you figure they got 2.5 kids, okay, you know. Yeah, well, I'm sure they had more than, but and women and children. So you know, call it. I, I did. You know, I don't even know what the average is anymore because the birth rate's going down. They say. Uh, so you know, call it 2.3. All right. So we got to find the third child and make them holy. You know, and so forth. So there's there's at least 12,000, 13,000 people there. Okay, if you take half a dad and mom and multiply by eight and subtract by four and carry the one and subtract the zero, okay? Because he meets their needs. And actually, in John 6, in this event, look over at John 6. That's a good point. They're following him. Go over to John 6. John 6. He feeds them here. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Oh. See, this is where they want to make him king because he fed them. Where is that at? I thought it was right there. 
fragments. Well, they would make, because he says, I'm the bread of life. 26. Man loathes labor. What should we do? The works. Believe on him. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Yeah, they want to make him king because what did he do to them? He fed them. See, the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, the people were missing the point. But the point wasn't to teach the people. The point was to teach the disciples, the little flock, the apostles. Go back to Matthew 14. See, it's getting them, them ready. He's like, guys, I'm leaving. He hadn't told them yet, but I'm going to go die now, and you, you guys are carrying on. So the feeding of the 5,000, the people... Some, were, some understood what was going on and got it, that, hey, these guys keep going back to him. So there's something going on with him. But it wasn't designed for, to teach the multitude. It was designed to teach the apostles that they needed to rely on him for their abundance, for their blessings. Okay? Now, come back to Matthew 15, because notice the issue about the fragments that are left over. And... Uh, who are the fragments for? Now, there's 12 baskets, but who are the, 12, who are the fragments for? See, that, the Gentiles, that's right. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 27. That's exactly right. Matthew 15, verse 27. And she said, this is a Gentile woman, the woman of Canaan. Truth. Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. That's who they were. You remember when they, were, when they would glean the fields? They would harvest the fields and they leave the edges for the poor and the strangers? Ruth, okay. But who are the strangers? The Gentiles. See, they couldn't come in and eat of the good stuff, but they could have the what? The fragments. So in Matthew 14, not only... Do, are they learning about their job? Okay. Not only do they get the overage, but they also are beginning to, t t they're beginning to understand that the provisions and the abundance and the things that are given to them by God was coming through Christ. So, they're un they're, so the thing is, is they're beginning to learn about who he is. And the fact is, is that the nation out there was rejecting him. But, and one day he's going to be crucified and then resurrected and ascended. And in his absence, that little flock's got to step in there and provide those, that, that channel, that flow of the blessings to continue in his absence. And uh, they're learning real quick here about he's the only one that could do that. I, I, here you go, go, bring it, come back to me. Just always coming back to me. Okay? Now, verse 22. And straightway Jesus came, constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him unto the other side where he sent the multitude, while he sent the multitudes away. Um, we, we'll pick up there next time, I think, just from looking at the clock. Okay? Because now he's going to go walk on water. 
And what we're and and we're going to need to spend some time down there in verse 25 about the fourth watch and get those watches right and so forth, the timing and everything, because these guys are literally going to they're going to row across a real small lake. It's going to take them nine hours to get nowhere because of the storm. But it's all pictures now of the tribulation and the 70th week of Daniel and what's coming up against them. And the fact that once again, it's going to be Christ and who they are in him that's going to get them through. Okay? So we'll finish, we'll finish up chapter 14 next time, starting verse 22 there. But just kind of get what's going on. He gave them the parables. And then Matthew switches right back to where he left off at the end of 12 on the rejection issue. And they kind of mock him at the end of 13. This is the carpenter's boy. But how does he know this stuff? And then he moves into dealing again with the apostles and the little flock and getting them ready for his absence, getting them ready in his rejection, using the death of John, a sad occasion, showing the wickedness and the spiritual condition in the nation, and says, listen, this is what's going on. He's trying to get away from everybody to have a moment of quiet time for himself, and yet there they come. So that piques his compassion, and he goes out and he heals them, he works in them, I mean, like I said, if you go 5,000, 5,000 women, if every man's married, then you go two kids, you know, you got 12, 12, about 12,000 people maybe, 13,000, you know, roughly, okay? You know, say not every man's married, so give it, give it you know, 11,000, I don't know, whatever. And he, that's a long day's work going through people, okay? At Saturday, Sunday afternoons when I get home, I sit down and I look at Linda and say, I ain't getting back up. <laughs> you know, we'll be good. But he does all that so that they can understand that he's the, he is the provider and their provisions are in him. Now in the walking on the water, he's going to do the same thing, but he's going to point out some stuff about Peter and the, the apostles that they have bad thinking. You look over there at verse 28, and Peter answered, him and said, Lord, if it be thou, see that doubt, if it be thou, and that's going to go back to chapter four, where Satan says, if you be the son of God, and yea, have, you know, there's going to be some doubt that's going to go on there and so forth, but we'll look at all that next time, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord, we thank you for your word, and above all, Lord, we thank you for everything we have in your son for everything that you provided for us in him. And we thank you for that. Just as Israel is learning here of their provisions in your son, we learn that as well in today. In your name we pray, amen.